Galatians chapter 2 is where we find ourselves. I started last week a series. I love being in a series, otherwise I don't know where I'm going. And it doesn't have to be a book, uh, preaching through a book, and this is certainly not one. I've entitled it Great New Testament Text. That leaves you pretty wide open. You can do a lot of text because there's a lot of great ones. But today we're looking at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And I've entitled my message, Your Flesh needs a funeral. Your flesh needs a funeral. Let me set the stage here if I can. Surviving to tell the story, Brad Kavanaugh, not Brett Kavanaugh, Brad Kavanaugh and Deborah Kiley were the only two survivors of the five passengers that were on a yacht that sank off the coast of the U.S. in the Atlantic Ocean as they were sailing from Maine down to Florida. On the morning they left, the weather reports all indicated clear sailing. However, the second night that they were traveling out on the Atlantic, the waves started cresting at about 35 feet high, and the knots were blowing out of the north about 80 knots. The wind was blowing out of the north at about 80 knots, and it began to blow them way off course. Kavanaugh and Kylie both listened attentively to the radio tracking the storm and tried to do their best to direct their sea vessel away from it. But the other three passengers, their friends, were drinking heavily, not really worried about the situation they were in. After sleeping for several hours, the others said that they were sober enough now that they could keep watch so Brad and Deborah could get some rest. However, All of them fell asleep, only to wake up to realize that their boat had lost power and was sinking in shark-infested waters in the Atlantic. All five were able to get into an inflatable raft that they had, and for days they hoped another ship would cross their path. Of course, they were a little pinpoint out there in the ocean. After about three days, all three of their friends, Lipoth, Mooney, and Adams were their last name, all three of their friends had died. After a few more days of languishing on the open sea, the two survivors were rescued by a Russian vessel, which in turn delivered them to the U.S. Coast Guard. I can't think of anything that would be much more harrowing than being adrift on the open seas without really knowing where you are or if you would ever get rescued. Christians are susceptible to drifting. People who know Jesus Christ who are bound for heaven, have a copy of the scriptures, often drift from their decision of faith. And one of the best ways to prevent that from happening is to understand and apply, maybe we would say, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Today, I hope to help you see that your flesh needs a funeral. That's basically my terms of what this verse is saying. You need to attend your own flesh's funeral. We read it a moment ago, but let's just read that one verse once again. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me or through me, maybe we would say. And the life which I now live in my flesh, my flesh is still here, but the life that I live in this body, he is saying, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So note with me a couple of ideas. First of all, this funeral is personal. This funeral is personal. There are seven personal pronouns in this one verse. Seven personal pronouns in this verse. Paul is making it clear that dying to self is a personal decision. Christ died for you, but if you're going to live for him, you have to die to self. And nobody can do it for you. You have to die to self. The first thing I want you to notice is Christ's death for you was necessary for your salvation. Christ's death for you was necessary for your own salvation. What Christ did for me on the cross is what allows me and you to be saved. I couldn't be saved without his work of the cross and, of course, the resurrection that followed it. Before we can be crucified with Christ, we must accept what he did for us on the cross. I simply want to say that in case someone listening to my voice thinks that, okay, for me to have eternal life, I've got to die to self. No, Christ died for you. You have to accept what he did in your behalf. The Bible says it this way, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It couldn't be much clearer than that. Christ died for us. And for us to have eternal life, we have to accept what he did on the cross in our payment for sin. So Christ's death for you was necessary for your salvation. Second, your death in Christ is necessary for your sanctification. We often talk about the three terms, salvation, that's punctiliar. It happens at a point in time with lasting results. Sanctification happens over the entire lifetime of our experience on earth where we're growing in Christ. And then glorification, salvation, sanctification. Glorification is when we're made into Christ's image. We sin no more. We're in glory. There's no sin there. There's no desire in us to sin. We're conformed to the image of Christ completely. But your death in Christ is necessary for your sanctification. Sanctification is the process, the ongoing process in the Christian life where we're being changed into the conformity of Jesus Christ. That is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. This is the apostle Paul speaking. I die daily. Obviously, he's not talking about physical death and then being raised to newness of life. He's talking about dying to sell, dying with Christ, recognizing that the deeds of the flesh are, he is dead to them. I die daily. And I'm confident that for most of us, and I think I could say all of us, it's not a one-time deal. It's not one and done. That we have to die daily as well or die regularly and nail things down that are a temptation to us. What did Paul mean when he said, I am crucified with Christ in this verse? It means to completely identify with Christ. To see yourself in Christ when he died on the cross. John MacArthur states it well, I think. Follow me. He says, Paul is referring to the fact that when a person exercises faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is placed in a transcendent spiritual union with Christ. In the historical event of his death and resurrection in which he paid the penalty in full. 
It is a transcendent spiritual event. We reckon, we understand is the terminology of Romans. We reckon that we were in Christ when he hung on the cross. Paul doesn't simply say he died with Christ. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Now, death for most people probably happens fairly peaceably. Unless it's war or something like that or violent death in an accident. But for most people, they die peaceably. But to die by crucifixion was horribly painful. So I don't think Paul was just being technically correct or theologically correct or historically correct. I think Paul is being precise, but he's helping us understand it isn't going to be easy. Death by crucifixion is not easy. It's painful. And to die with Christ means it's painful. You know, the fact of the matter is a lot of people adore the Christ in the cradle, or they await the Christ that's coming, but they abhor the idea of being crucified, of dying to self. Most Christians are abhorred at the idea of dying to self. We like the other aspects of the Christian life, but not the dying to self. But I think that's why Paul is saying, I am crucified with Christ, because that is painful. That's not easy. Paul admits that his own flesh fought against him. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7 in your Bible. I think it is Paul being very, very personal in explaining and being very transparent about his own struggle. You might think Paul didn't have any struggles. He did, and he did with his flesh. I'm just going to read a section of Romans chapter 7. I'll begin reading at verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Remember, crucifying the flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, the desire is there to live for Christ. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. I got this desire. I want to live for God all the time, but I don't always do that. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not, to do it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's not my desire but I catch myself doing things that are not pleasing to God. And it's my flesh acting without my heart and mind maybe even being engaged. I find then a law, and he means by that a principle. Here's a principle, he says. I find this principle that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. As long as I am in this flesh I'm always going to have this propensity to struggle with the, the deeds that I want to be characterized by the old man and not by the new man. So Paul admits he struggled with his flesh. And if he did, you do, and so do I. So hence the problem. First thing is this funeral is personal. Every one of us have to recognize that this is going to be a struggle for the rest of our life. Second, this funeral is productive. Now, that may seem like a strange 
word choice, I suppose, or strange phraseology to say a funeral is productive, but truth is funerals can be productive. I've done a lot of funerals and done quite a few lately, more than I would prefer, more than people would prefer. But funerals can be productive. So I know, and you probably know, that sometimes when death visits a family, God is at work as people are thinking about eternity. And this funeral, this funeral for your flesh can be productive as well. Why? Number one, because this funeral brings life. Most funerals don't, except when people are saved. But this funeral brings life. Notice the paradox in this verse. Paul says, I am crucified, which we always associate with a very painful death. I am crucified, nevertheless I live. I really live, maybe he could say. I live for Christ now because I've crucified my flesh. I can really live for God. Even though I'm dead to my flesh, even though my flesh is crucified, now I really live is what he's saying. I can really live. By dying to self, the old man, the old nature, you have new life in Christ. Again, Romans, I think, Galatians is like Romans. It's just a much shorter version of it, but it is a great book dealing with salvation. In Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, Paul says it this way. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Sounds familiar, Galatians 2.20. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion, control over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. I'm going to keep reading. Likewise, you also. So he says, not only is this true for Christ, but here's the application of that. Paul says, likewise, you also reckon. Now, that's not just a southern term. That's a Bible term. Reckon means to think about it, to meditate on it, and then apply it. Take this truth, Paul says, reckon it, and apply it to your own life. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, this flesh. Do not let sin control reign. Kings reign. Kings have their edicts. Kings make decisions. Don't let sin make the decisions in your life. Don't let sin dictate in your life, he says. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Don't let your body become tools for sinful living, instruments, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now be a tool for righteousness, for sin shall have no dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. God forbid, I think it says in the old King James. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, that you are the one slaves whom you obey, whether you of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? 
But God be thanked, God be praised that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart, you trusted God, your heart was changed, that form of doctrine of which you were delivered, you were delivered by believing in Jesus Christ, and having been set free from sin, you became now a slave of righteousness. So he expands upon Galatians 2.20. It elaborates, your identity has changed, we could say. You're not the same person. Before, your body, your mind was an instrument. It was a tool that Satan used to fulfill your fleshly desires. But now you're not the same person. Now your body, your mind is, belongs to God and is fulfilling God's purposes is what he's saying. Your identity has changed. Maybe we'd even say your address has changed. In other words, when sin temptation comes knocking at your door, you send the new man in Christ to answer the door. And when temptation presents itself, the new man in Christ can say, oh, you've got the wrong address. That person doesn't live here. It's a different person here now. He can't answer those temptations anymore because now he's a slave. He's a servant to righteousness, not to sin. This funeral is productive because it brings life. Second, this funeral is productive because it produces fruit. It produces fruit. The Bible often refers to the works of the flesh. Or sometimes it refers to the sins of the flesh. But when it's talking about fruit, it's the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit working through us. We hopefully all understand that we can't really do anything that glorifies God in and of ourselves. It is the Spirit working through us as we yield to him, as we yield these instruments, these tools, our body, our mind, our time to him. Then the Spirit can really use us. It's the fruit of the Spirit, and sometimes it's called the fruit of righteousness. We are not only saved from hell, but we're saved from the power of sin. We have been freed from the bondage of sin and now are free to serve and follow Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, God took the nation of Israel and miraculously allowed them to cross two bodies of water. The first one was the Red Sea when they left Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and he took them across the Red Sea. And for the first time in hundreds of years, now Israel was a free people. They wandered in the desert for 40 years, and then he took them across the second body of water. Of course, that was the Jordan River under Joshua. He brought them into the promised land. And you know, the Red Sea is a picture of salvation. They were slaves and now they're free. They're in bondage, and now they can serve the Lord. The Jordan River is a picture of sanctification, we would say, because now they're living in freedom. They have victory over the nations that occupied what we sometimes call Palestine. That is a picture of sanctification, and that applies to us. That's a picture of us. We're saved by God's grace, and then as we go back to him and we die to self and we ask him for grace and we ask for the Holy Spirit's enablement, we are sanctified. 
We can say no to the thing that characterized our life before Christ. Even if we were saved late in life and those things were very entrenched in our life and ingrained in our character, we can say no to them when we die to the flesh, when we have a funeral for our flesh. So just as God provided for Israel, he does for us in this dispensation. Third, this funeral is practical. This topic certainly is theological. Because we're, if I can say it this way, dealing with something that's somewhat metaphysical. That we're recognizing that we are in Christ when he died on the cross. We are in Christ when he rose from the tomb and from the grave. We understand the concept. And it is a theological concept because it requires us to mentally identify with Christ. But the ramifications are very practical. Getting a hold of this truth is very practical in the Christian life. It's very important for your sanctification. This funeral is practical because we realize we are now dead to the law's condemnation. This great text is found in a chapter and found in a book, the book of Galatians, where Paul is explaining that we're no longer bound and condemned by the Old Testament law. That's the greater context of this verse. Matter of fact, earlier as we read, as Pastor Jacob read, Paul rebuked Peter. Now, they're both apostles. But Peter was to be blamed. Peter, <laughs> nobody, nobody trying to pick on Peter, but Peter had a propensity to follow his flesh, whether it was in the garden where he pulls out his sword and lops off Malchus's ear, or he's up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he says to Jesus, hey, how about if we build some tents here and we just stay up here? Or when Jesus is talking about being crucified and he says, Lord, Lord, don't even talk that way. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter had a propensity to trail off that way and that's really an extension of that what happened here he was with the gentiles and when he was with the gentiles he was living like a gentile outside of the law and then when the jews from jerusalem came the judaizers came he withdraws himself and pretends that he's living just like a jew and he's keeping the law and paul says you're a hypocrite that's the very words that are recorded in scripture you're a hypocrite you live like you're under the law when you're with jews and you live like the gentiles when you're with the gentiles he says we're no longer under the law it's condemnation or it's restrictions so that's, that's the context here where Paul rebukes Peter. He, was, he says in chapter 2, verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed because he was living inconsistently, pretending to be under the Old Testament law. And Paul is making the point that this is not just hypocrisy. This is dealing with the gospel. This is dealing with more than just the Old Testament law, because the law points out that we're sinners, but it can't save us. No matter how good you can keep the law, that can't save you. We realize we're dead to the law's condemnation. 
It can do nothing for us but to make us aware of our sin. We have died to the law by dying with Christ. Now follow me. By dying with Christ, who died under the law's penalty, we find out that all of the law's demands were satisfied in him, and they have no more hold on us. We have completed the law. We have fulfilled the law through Christ. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. We are in Christ. The law has no condemnation for us because it's completely fulfilled in us as we are in Christ. That's the point he's making. Again, let me quote from MacArthur. He says, if a man is convicted of a capital crime and put to death, the law obviously has no more claim on him. He's committed a capital crime, goes to the electric chair, gets an injection or whatever it might be, there is no more claim on that man's life. He has paid his debt to society. Therefore, even if he were raised from the dead, he would still be guiltless before the law because he satisfied the penalty of it by dying, which would have no claim on his life. And so it is with the believer who dies with Christ and he's risen to newness in life, the law has no claim on him any longer because it's been fulfilled. He's in Christ. Second, we realize we are dead to the law's condemnation when we realize we can now be dead to lust temptation. And that's probably the biggest application here. We're dead in Christ to lust temptation. Now, the word lust, I think probably all of you understand that the word lust in the Bible means strong desire. We can lust after food or we can lust after water if we're thirsty. We can probably never use this way. We can lust for heaven. We want to be glorified. It means strong desire, but it's often used to describe sexual passion. That's the way it's probably used the most in the New Testament. But our struggles are not restricted exclusively to that realm. Everybody understands that. Yes, there are lusts of sexual passion, but our lusts are much broader than just that one area. The old man, the flesh, has things that he wants to see, things that he wants to do, places he wants to go, things he wants to experience. That's why 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says it this way. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, maybe the lust of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. This world's going away. And the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So he describes what kind of is a large picture of the desires of man. We, we want to experience things. We want to do things. We, we want to go places. We want to enjoy things. We see things that we desire. It's kind of our desires, our lust. We can die to those things. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, we go around as robots, no desires or anything like that, but our desires have changed. That which Satan and the world is always holding out to us and enticing us with, we don't have to follow those desires. We don't have to fulfill those lusts any longer because we now have the power through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, to say no to those things, to say he doesn't live here anymore. You're talking to the wrong guy. By understanding or reckoning the Bible term, our position in Christ, we can be dead to the lust of the flesh and fulfill the desires of the Spirit. 
That means every wicked thought that grips us, every bitter thought that eats away at us, every worry that overwhelms us, we can die to those things. They don't have to control us. Those strongholds that our flesh wants and even thinks that we need, we can die to by the Holy Spirit's enablement, by reckoning that we died on the cross with Christ and now we're raised to newness of life to fulfill God's desire through us. I've had the privilege of doing many, many weddings over the last 36 years that I've been here at South Sheridan and now Red Rocks. As the couple stands before me, You've heard the words that I and other preachers use. We say to the bride, do you take this man whose hand you hold to be your lawfully wedded husband? And she answers, I do. Or sometimes how it's written, I will. I do. And then, of course, they're joined for life. Understood in that public affirmation before the witnesses, In that public affirmation, she is saying, I am turning away from all other suitors. I'm turning away from all other would-be lovers who would take my hand and lead me away. I'm turning away from everyone else that maybe in the past I have been attracted to or enticed by. I'll talk about that in the wedding. But they're saying, I'm committing myself, I do, I will. I'm committing myself to this person till death do us part. That's what they're saying. And that is the kind of commitment and presentation of our life that God wants from you and me. Where we're basically saying, God, here's my life. I give it to you. I present myself to you. I'm turning away from all the other attractions and would-be suitors and and would-be lovers of my flesh. And I present myself to you. And Lord, in my own strength, I can't do this. But by your Spirit's enablement, I'm reckoning in my mind, I am dead to those things. And by the Spirit's enablement, I'm saying yes to the things that please you. Then we say that every day thereafter, Lord, I'm yours. Here I am. Please use me. That's why your flesh, my flesh, needs a funeral where we recognize we're dead to the old things, the things that characterized us in our lost days and unfortunately even in our days since we've been saved and have followed our flesh. It's a matter of reckoning, accepting, and then applying. May God give us grace to do that. Let's pray. Father, help us. We can't do the Christian life. We can't live the Christian life in our own strength. We know that you have made every provision for us, though, through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, to be able to live what we sometimes refer to as the victorious Christian life. Just as the Israelites could conquer the land, and they were a small, relatively small band of people conquering much stronger and more fortified cities, that would oppose them. It was your enablement, your miraculous provision for them in which they could conquer the land. And so, Lord, help us. Not to say it's impossible. This has characterized my life 
This is who I am. This is what I've done for so long. I can't change. Help us get that kind of thinking and kind of phraseology out of our mind and say, I can through Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So get glory unto yourself through our lives because we've died to our flesh. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.